Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. We're talking about lives. We're talking about how to make our our life sustainable and basically how to survive. I live in Lima. Lima is a city that has 10 million people. The drinking water availability, I mean, the total water availability, all the water resources in the city is 100 cubic meters uh, per capita per year. That's like half of what a U.S. person spends in a year. And that's all the water resources we have here. Camilo Guzman is an industrial chemical engineer with international experience in engineering, public policy, and emergency response. He currently works at United Nations Development Program on water management, particularly on water innovation and transboundary water management. Camilo was a graduate teaching fellow at Yale University and is one of the most passionate and knowledgeable people of water that I've ever met. In this podcast, you will learn about how we make water great again and the use of artificial intelligence in water management across different industries. I hope you enjoy. So water constantly is overlooked in mainstream society. How do we make water cool and more relevant within society today? Well, Kevin, that's not an easy question. Starting by the relevant uh, part of the question, because it's so obvious that water is key to life. However, we don't see it. In many cities where there's running water, people just open the tap and they don't think about it. When people don't have access to safe drinking water or they don't have access to water for irrigation and they depend on on rain and their droughts, people are constantly thinking about how to deal with the water, how to get the water to function and to live and to survive. However, oftentimes once people have that supply secured, they forget about it. And it, it's because it's basically like on, on the background, we, it's something we need to function as we need air to function. And we only think about it and to live, we need air and we need water. And we only think about it when there is a problem and we cannot get it. So I think that that's one of the reasons we don't see it as an interesting or cool thing because it's always there. On the other hand, electricity, for instance, although it has been around for over 100 years, that's, that's something kind of new to humanity. And there's always new things happening around electricity because it's a new, totally new invention that we were never, never accustomed to it. So how do uh, water cool? I think it has first, well, first to do like, when we think, why do we want it to be cool? It's because we want people to care about it. We want people to have professionals that think about how to make a sustainable, reliable supply of water for drinking and irrigation to have water security, and therefore we need professionals with innovation, we need research, we need a lot of things going around how to make that, that work. That's why we need it to be cool. Then, how to do it, it has to do with who you're talking to. I think if we're talking about the general public, the most important thing to make it uh, cool is that maybe for the general public, like people who use the water, it's not important in that sense. Maybe people just need to have a sustainable supply. They, they, they don't need to, to think about what, hap- what is happening behind. The thing we need to care about is about the sector that's supply, supplying and managing that water. 
we see at least in the in all the Americas or America, and by America I mean the whole continent, from Canada to Patagonia, we see that the people who run, I don't know, the, the, the person who runs a facility is probably 50 or 60 something white old engineer that has been doing the same thing over and over for the last 40 years. And it has to do that many of the technical problems around water supply were solved like 40, 50 years in the sense that there were the big pumps, the big structures were available at the time and it worked. And we kind of, as we're not thinking about what's happening behind, we have we had left that running, that kind of kind of view. So we need to work with those people and bring new people with new ideas into the sector. And the way to make it cool for these new people is basically that we're talking about life. We're talking about how to make our our life sustainable and basically how to survive. I live in Lima. Lima is a city that has 10 million people and the, the drinking water availability, I mean, the total water availability, all the water resources in the city is 100 cubic meters per capita per year. That's like half of what a U.S. person spends in a year. And that's all the water resources we have here, like every drop of every river. So there is no way to have a supply for, even for European standards, for every city, if we do it the way water is being managed today. So what we have to do here is to understand the impact it has on survival. That, that's in the end. And then we can talk about technology and new, 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 new technologies and governance and etc. But first is, is that, Kevin, is thinking about, it's about survival. Yeah. And as you were talking, the two quotes that were going through my head was were the, uh, you don't realize the worth of water till the well is dry. And the other quote, uh, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. And as you were talking, it, it's so true where we don't really think about it until we don't, until we have a problem. We just sort of assume that I'll turn on my tap, water's there. Granted, if you were born yeah. into a different situation, that's that's different. And I think that's one of the most important things is that everyone's water situation is different, but all of us can do something about it. And that I'm kind of interested in your, your thoughts on that of, and, and this is contextual for everyone, but what are some things that individuals can do to play a role in it? Granted, there, there's certain things within the system, the, the macro, you know, the government and big political systems that with lobbyists and stuff that we can't change. But what, what are some things that we as individuals can do to be more proactive in addressing some of the water issues that we face within our local communities? I actually think that the, those big things uh, in the political system sometimes can be changed and that we do need to engage in that politics. Look at what's happening in Chile right now. Chile is going through a major social unrest basically because of inequalities in health, education, etc. But one of the key demands is water, because in the central re region of the country, you have a conflict between agriculture and drinking water. The country has a private water scheme. So basically, if you're a town and you don't have water, you need to buy water rights. And if there are no one selling those rights, then you don't have water for your town. So there are a lot of activists like pushing forward an agenda to change that. 
And there's going to be, and right now, if, the, if it's going to be a vote, if a new constitution will be written, and those people will be playing a key role in like how that water be managed. And believe me, that's going to be the new, the new constitution of the country. So I think there are things we can do, like, like basically the first thing is vote and engage in politics, because the, the phrase uh, that water whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting, that's just because it's politics. There is a lot of politics going on behind water. And now, like, letting the political system aside, the things we can do, it has to do, like, how, thinking more than the, the water tap, yeah, we can save water at home, we can reduce the time to shower, we can, even when the water, if we live in a city, if we do live in a city with running water everywhere, we can, I don't know, when the water is heating up, like put a, a, a bucket and use that extra water for uh, for irrigation for our plants and home and things like that. But we have to think beyond that. We have to think like, hey, I'm buying this milk or this meat. How much water is in this milk? Oh, okay, there is like 15,000 15, liters uh, that are in this milk. So I have to think about my way of consumption. It's the same thing like if I care about climate change, what do I do? Like my behavior, uh, maybe I should reduce flying, maybe I should eat again, less meat. So going like that, I have three basically three proposals. First is engaging politics because water has a lot to do with politics. Second, the way water is, is, is managed has a lot to do with politics. Second, the simple things you can do at home, which has to do with water reduce and recycle water at home. And third, the thing beyond the direct consumption of direct consumption of your water, things about think about the impacts of your activities, like the, the meat of the example of the meat. And fourth, it also has to do a fourth thing you could you could think about is the, the way man, water is managed in your community. If, for instance, one of the projects we have here is in the outskirts of Lima, where we're working with the local community that do have running water, uh, they live just in the in the end of the city, and they receive they are an ecosystem that has a lot of fog. So we're working on fog collection, irrigation, and working on water recycling and great water treatment for for also for irrigation for when there's no fog. So they also things that you can do not only at home, but that you can do with your community that are between the individual activity or personal activity and the big politics, which are engaging with your community. You could even if you live in a building, you live in a building there are chances that you have, a, the building has maybe a patio or something or garden, and you could have some water recycling and things like that, that maybe don't have an important impact in terms of actual water consumption, but it creates conscious, which is very important. Yeah, well said. I I love the the four key things you said with engaging politics, simple things at home, impact of activities, and last, the way water is managed. I want to kind of dive into that a little bit more. I know you do a lot of work with water management and these projects. And, and at on at the Unleash when we were in China, we talked a lot about artificial intelligence, and it's this big buzzword that you constantly see on the cover of magazines. And frankly, a lot of people, they hear the word cloud, and they hear artificial intelligence, and they hear algorithms, and they're just kind of like assume that, oh, yeah, it's some kind of someone in the cloud that's doing something, making it happen. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. what? how does this framework of artificial intelligence and cloud computing how does that transfer into the water sector and how can that help 
with water management from a, a centralized or decentralized in rural and urban standpoint? Yeah, I think it has, also, has to do with the thing that I was telling you, was telling you earlier that Basically, we have this old tradition of engineers that they hydraulic chemical engineers that build pipes. And like in my, in my experience, when I, while building wastewater facilities, I was talking to a civil engineer or hydraulic engineer, and they were like, "Yeah, I don't know the electrical and computing part. I don't know that that's a black box." And you talk to the electronic or data scientists, and they're like, "Ah, the chemical, hydraulic, biological side of this. I I don't know. You tell me." So there's no connection between these uh, two worlds. Right now, I'm, pro I'm working also on a, on a project trying to find very specific solutions to wastewater treatment using AI. And I see that divide. I'm like, I, I have, I'm, I'm, I feel like a bridge between these two worlds. So the first thing uh, there is try to, we have to try to connect these two worlds that usually don't talk to each other. Civil hydraulic chemical engineers, they don't, we, because I'm a chemical engineer, we don't have experience in data science or electronics uh, in general. They don't have experience on hydraulic or chemical engineering. So that's, that's, that's the first thing. Try to bridge the two worlds. Second, the thing is that these infrastructures in the, in the big cities, even in the, in the developing world, were built 20, 30, 50, 80 years ago. So they were, they were not thinking about a world that could be sensorized and that could have this kind of, this level of information. Like the big data is something very, very new. It appeared like the last, like what, five years? So <clears throat> if, for, if we think about utilities, utilities can benefit a lot from first, simple analytics. Like know where your water is going, uh, what is happening, and have key insights. And that, that maybe you don't need AI because you, you can have simple regressions and simple uh, data management. This start, starts with simple data management and information, like knowing where you are, for instance, for non-revenue water, which is the water that is typed, that's going to the home that is lost through the system. Like if you could have a better sensor network, you could know what is happening and know how to tackle it. However, for instance, in the developing world, here in Lima, uh, there is uh, a little bit of like micro pro control. I mean, for instance, my building where I live, we only have one one flow flow meter for the whole building, not for each house. So we don't know. I, I pay like proportional, but it could be that my neighbor could be needing that could be having the shower on all day long, and I'm paying for that. So we need first to have this basic level of flow meters and sensors to have that, that kind of information necessary. And then you can profit or benefit from data analytics. And once you've done that, when you reach that level, because we're actually, actually there's a lot of information anyways, like especially in the, in the West, by the West, I mean Europe and the US, there's a lot, a lot of information coming from the, the PLC, which are the computers from the facilities that is not being used. And once you have that, you can benefit for even from data sharing because you could, if you are utility one and you're utility two, you will have information and you could have insights that could be shared to the other facilities and be able to control or improve your processes. I will stop rambling around and I will let you <laughs> engage here because I'm talking a lot. I'm very fast. No, this this is what this podcast is all about of uh, throwing it out there and then talking about these different dynamics and. As you were talking, I was thinking about how 
data is great, but it also can be a double-edged sword. You were, you were talking about you can have a water meter at the inlet of the building, point of entry, and then if you are an individual household that's just wastefully using water, that's fine because you, you don't really care because it's divvied up amongst the 50 units in the house. And, mm-hmm. and so in, interested in, in your thoughts on the dynamic of how data can be a double-edged sword. I know there's that there's some phrase I'm probably going to butcher it, but what what sh- you can't manage what you don't measure or, or whatever that phrase is. But mm. how is data something that can be used for good? And and maybe now that we have data, how can we use that to create incentives or disincentives for people or industries, for that matter, to change their actions? Yeah, so the the first thing thing to think about there is the biases or the implicit biases that the decision maker could have and what that data is not looking at. There are famous, there's a famous case in the US for this algorithm that helped judges sentence people for minor criminal actions and it had a bias against a black person. Basically because they had the historical data that black person had a higher likelihood of being criminal because judges assume that if they were black, they were guilty. So that was incorporated into the algorithm. And they had to, there was a feedback loop, like sending more black people to jail. So we have to think, for instance, if, we, if we're measuring, if I go to the communities where I work in the outskirts of Lima, I could say, hey, they are, if I have the data, I would say, hey, they're wasteful. Maybe just shut down that, the, the pipe, cut the water to them. But I could not be looking at that they have a communal dining, dining room where 40 people go to eat every day, and that's why that's why they have their wasteful because they're feeding 40 people. It's not they're being wasteful. If you think they're just one household, they are. So first thing there is basically that big data could hide details, could hide could hide very important information on personal individuals. So we have to to be very careful about that and to think about the biases of the decision maker and that uh, could be hidden in the algorithm, the algorithm and the data. That first. Second, that when you have, uh, once you have that, the, as we were talking earlier, the, the sensor networks could help, could help detect uh, the leaks and, the, and having the combination between sensor networks and AI could help the cities or the utilities manage the water. For instance, you could have, I don't know, people in, when you have dormitory cities, you don't need to have full pressure and providing water for that whole dormitory city because it's empty during the day. And you could like direct your water, your water flow, your water pressure to somewhere else. You don't need to have an, to have a whole uh, a big pressure everywhere. And that has, and if you, if you do that, you will be also reducing energy consumption. So, yeah. Well, well said. And so within this data discussion as well, I know I heard a, an article today on, I was listening to a podcast, it was talking about how the agriculture industry is the single biggest uh, driver of, of, I would say, climate change in general, but it's one of the largest emitters of carbon and, and is, has a lot of lobbying power around the world. Granted, the world needs to eat. And, and I think maybe the two big um, dynamics within the agriculture discussion is one, uh, humans are very bad at uh, wasting food. We waste a lot of food unnecessarily. Uh, we throw food into the garbage, which contributes to methane. Interesting your thoughts on that. But particularly, how is the dynamic of data 
being applied to the agriculture industries. Um, I know I've seen like drones being used and doing sensors and to be able to locate hotspots or cold spots and, and doing kind of crop tilling and whatnot, uh, which is cool. Um, that's some aspects of data capture and, and data deployment. But what, what, what other types of data discussions are you aware of that, that can be relevant to the agriculture industry that's being in use today? Yeah, well, that's that's a tough, tough question, especially considering, considering that well, agriculture consumes about 80% of the water we use. Well, it varies from country to country, but that's the range Ish. I think you think there is what what kind of agriculture first? Like, are we thinking about the big big agriculture we have in Ohio or that we have in the coast of Peru, or are we thinking about uh, just the living the family the family agriculture we have in the Andes? That's they're very different. So again, it has to do with the data and who you're thinking about. Who is your, who is your, well, in this case, the user uh, or the person you are, let's say, monitoring. So the, the, the first thing is that satellite imagery and weather prediction or having better weather prediction system can help a lot of farmers, particularly farmers. Let's think about the, the dry corridor in Central America. If, if people are leaving for many reasons, one is violence, well, second is basically they didn't have a sustainable income, and one of them, one driver is climate change, because they're, if they don't have a crop when they were supposed to, they, they just don't have food, they don't have money, and they leave. But if you could have a better weather prediction system, that could help them plan ahead and maybe change the crop or change the, when they would plant that crop. It won't solve the issue, but better, better weather prediction systems that have to do with satellite, satellite and aerial imagery, better modeling, which of course has to do with machine learning, that that, that will help a lot on the sustainability of, of agriculture. Also, satellite imagery, when you have big, big farming, can, can help uh, detect water issues much faster than the eye. Like if you, if you have, uh, I don't know, a big industrial, I don't know, corn farm, maybe you don't see that there is somewhere in your corn that, that is dry, that is not, uh, not producing, but with those imagery, imagery you could. And third, you could manage uh, irrigation systems much efficiently and much better, like adjusting to local climate and plant conditions and boost the yield. However, there's a trick, because as you may know, irrigation and drip irrigation oftentimes uh, causes uh, more water consumption because you have higher yield and you have a bigger plant that has big more evapotranspiration and therefore more water is, is lost from that basin. That's something that to think about where you're working. So the what happened, what is happening in the agriculture sector then is that big agriculture needs to adapt quickly because they have a very very low profit margin and they need to stay. They need they have constantly diminishing returns and a lot of competition. So in order to stay afloat, they always have to bring new technologies, new innovation. Which well, it's just see the history like from sowing with your hand to the this self-driving tractors today. And on the other hand, you have to think of the livelihood farming and how to help those those people have a sustainable livelihood because they will either like literally perish 
or they will migrate and they will migrate maybe to a place like what is happening actually here in Peru. People migrate from the from the Andes to the big cities, and the big cities are not able to support the population, and they end up in uh, in informal settlements, and there is a circle of poverty going around. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many different discussions within the agricultural complex and and obviously the the large industrial complex of of agriculture is is one that maybe our our world has just become reliant on. You know, whether it's fast food, fast food central, fast food countries, or uh, just. But on the flip side, looking at individual farming and subsistence farmers and, and sort of, um, and maybe this kind of plays into one last question for you of that, um, like for, for those farmers that live on the Amazon or for those, those families that are living in different places in Central and South America where there's a forest in front of them and they're looking at it and they think, well, I know I shouldn't necessarily cut this forest down for the longevity of the world, but I need to find a way to make an in- income and a mm-hmm. living for my family. So mm-hmm. they're like, I don't really care about tomorrow because I need to feed my family today. What are your thoughts or when you when you think about those smaller, the non-mega agricultural complexes about the best ways to, to make a living? And, and, and is it even possible to save kind of small-scale subsistence farming around the world? Well, first, thank you for reminding me the word subsistence. I, I, I was thinking on the word before. And, well, I wouldn't think that those farmers don't care about tomorrow. They, they often do. It's just they don't have an option. That's just the thing. And that's what happens. It's not that I don't care. It's just I can't. I do care, but I need to eat today. So I will figure that out tomorrow. So I think there are options. So we have to think. If we're thinking about protecting those people, because maybe, maybe sustenance agriculture or small, small agriculture is not sufficient to provide food for the mega cities we have today, and we will need, or we might need, the industrial agriculture complex for feeding those mega cities. But we also we have this, this population that has lived in a certain way for a long time. I think that for, for maintaining that kind of agriculture, it is feasible. The thing is, there are many, many, many projects uh, going around all over the world trying to find sustainable ways to manage, uh, to manage, for example, coffee. Coffee is a very good example because coffee is a driver of deforestation, but one of the reasons that coffee is a driver of deforestation is that the price is low because it has become a commodity. But oftentimes what you see actually here in Peru, Colombia, and Central America is that once farmers, small farmers, Form a co-op, they form a blend, a blend or a cooperative that has a blend and a brand of organic coffee, and they get a, get a premium of the coffee and the price that we paid. They are able to manage their small plot in a sustainable way, and they don't need to expand and cut down the trees. What happens with the palm, for example, is that we want for well, we don't want like actually big companies fight for bringing price low for everything we eat and we consume from a bar chocolate to shampoo. They fight on price and, and they, they, they have a big demand on palm oil. And there are many, many small farmers that they don't have much of an alternative. Like they will uh, produce coffee very cheap or they will produce palm oil, palm or maybe get a premium on it. So the thing is that there are ways. The thing is that we have to pay for it. 
And they're basically what we're talking about here is internalization, internalizing these technologies that are being offset. Yep. Well, well said, Camilo. And and as as we wind up here, I want to give you one last sort of plug of uh, if you were going to tell the SDG world and, and even those outside that people who maybe don't think about SDGs, anything about water or, or, or really any of the SDGs in general, what's a final thought, comment, or question that you have for all our listeners here? A final thought on SDGs. Well, first, the, the sustainable development goals are, all of them are interconnected. We often think about, yeah, water, energy, food, uh, peace, etc., as different things. And people who work in SDGs are usually isolated on their own solid track. But the, we have to have a complex systems or systems approach to it. Think about interconnections, think about the feedback, and think how what I do with my left hand affects what I do with my right hand. Right hand. They don't work separately. Wow. Couldn't agree more. Well, Camilo, thank you so much for your time today. Really love all the work that you're doing within the water sector and, and look forward to, to seeing what's next for you. Thank you, Kevin. And I look forward to uh, listening to your next podcasts. Thanks, Camilo. Well, I don't know about all of you, but I could absolutely listen to Camilo talk about H2O all day. One of the big things I took from this podcast was when I mentioned the question about, hey, what can individuals do at the home and, and individual actions? He flipped it and said, we should engage in politics. We should find ways to push local and state and federal politicians to make action and actually change some of the different practices as pertains to water management, access to water, things of that nature. Uh, one of the key takeaways as well from the podcast is remembering that everyone's water situation is different. So we cannot generalize the situation in Peru is much different from Rwanda, from Canada to South Africa. Every situation is different, so it's very important to have empathy, get your hands dirty, really listen to the people so you can then figure out a solution. Take care and talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community goal of the STG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on STG Talks.